we live in really interesting times, I think. Um, I, I was listening to, mentioned it before, I think, Don Carson a few years ago was talking about the shift that he's seen. Uh, he reflected on what it was like speaking in universities and um, in colleges um, 40 years ago compared to today. Uh, and he said that there was a period of time where people were very clearly antagonistic to the idea of the Christian faith, to the idea of God and all of that kind of thing. But they were very, whenever they were resistant, they were very clearly resistant to the idea of the God of the Bible. And yet now what we see is a completely different landscape. We see a landscape where people have integrated into uh, Western culture all sorts of different ideas of spirituality, different ideas of God. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest that we are far less resistant to the idea of spirituality uh, than maybe we have for the past 100, 150, 200 years, uh, maybe. Just to think about the most successful um, film um, franchises in the past uh, few years. We've got the old story, in a sense, Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings and about to be released, second part of The Hobbit, which is really quite surprising, isn't it? It is a little sideways. Uh, we've got Lord of the Rings. On my shelf, it's a book around about that thick, and it made up three films. And then we've got The Hobbit, which is about that thick, and remarkably, it's making up three films, which is quite amazing, really, which probably says a whole lot more about making money rather than wanting to tell the story. But at the same time, we've got this remarkable interest in the idea of the spiritual. We've got the hugely successful Harry Potter franchise. Incredible interest in the spiritual. I was watching a program on TV the other day, which uh, there was a woman who was... Um, tattooed from head to foot uh, with uh, the Twilight Saga scenes and words. Uh, those of you who are kind of into the Twilight Saga understand what it's all about. Uh, you might kind of be interested in the success of the story, but to tattoo yourself with scenes from the Twilight Saga from head to foot, I think is kind of a bit of kind of extreme. But when you listen to what she was saying, what, what she actually said was that there was a point in her life where everything was falling apart. And she read the first of the Twilight Saga, and there was a particular chapter which just spoke to her so powerfully. It gave her a, a living hope outside of anything that she had experienced, in anything that anybody had said to her. It gave her a hope for life, and she was reflecting that life-transforming hope with a whole load of wolves tattooed all over her body. And you might think, well, that's really weird, and yet at the same time, doesn't it say something about our human situation? I want to suggest that our experience in this world reminds us again and again that we are not simply material people, but there is a deeply spiritual element to us. 
there is a part of us which connects with, as um, C.S. Lewis described, the other. That there is a sense of spirituality written deep into us. And that there are some of us who realize that we cannot find absolute hope purely in this world. Now, in the light of all of that, in the kind of thinking about all of those things, we come to the central idea of the Christian message, which is the claim that Jesus of Nazareth, no less than the Son of God, died on a cross, was buried for three days. After three days, he rose physically, bodily, and came back to human life. Let me say that really carefully. He came back to human life. Now, now it's so important that we get our minds around that. When Jesus rose again, it wasn't some kind of representation of spirituality. He wasn't some sort of ghost form. He was a living human being. Now, we, we recognize that there was potentials in that human identity which are different, potentially, to before. I'm not saying that there isn't a remarkable what it is to be human in resurrection. I think there is. But he rose as a living human being. So when he went and sat on the beach, and the disciples saw him on a bo- in, from the boat, and they saw him on, on the shore, what was he doing? He was cooking food. He was cooking fish. And they went and they met with him. And if you think about this, Jesus who was dead picked up pieces of fish, broke the flesh off the bones, put that flesh into his mouth and ate it and digested it as an ordinary human being. The digestive system of the risen Jesus is the same as yours and my digestive system. It worked in the same way because he is a risen human being. The next essential claim that the Bible makes is that that risen human being then ascended to heaven. Now, the word ascended, as we've looked at the past couple of weeks, we think of the word ascended as some sort of physical movement as opposed to uh, a, a movement of state. Um, we think of it ascended going up, don't we? And the Bible describes it in some ways as going up. And yet we talk about our queen or our king ascending the throne, don't we? That, that's a common word that we use. Now, when the queen, I can't remember uh, from the old footage, 1953, when the queen was crowned, I can't remember whether she was on a, a higher dais. She might well have been. Uh, But she ascended the throne, didn't she? We use that language. That doesn't mean that she went 50, 60 foot into the air. It means the status that she then had as queen was different to the status before. Now that's what we mean, very much so. That's a key element of what we mean when we talk about Jesus ascended. He's reached a point where he's reached a new status a status of sublime authority 
as the risen, ascended Jesus. The uh, Scottish theologian described that remarkable occasion in this way. Uh, John, uh, John Duncan, John Rabbi Duncan, he said this, The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. Jesus is, was, and ever will be in eternal being the Son of the living God. And yet at the same time carries into heaven human flesh which ate fish on the beach. That is mind-blowing as a claim, isn't it? And yet it's essential. It's essential when we look at this reading because the reading that we've looked at speaks about the kind of person that Jesus is, the kind of role that he has. It describes him as a priest. And look at verse 25. It says, and we were looking at his priestly role last week in the sense that he went in through the curtain, looking at another passage in Hebrews where we see that he moved to a place where only the priest could go. And the question that we began to ask last week, well, in that place, what is he doing? What is the priest doing behind that curtain? What we see in verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 7 is we see what he is doing. Look at what it says in verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hear what what that says. He always lives to intercede for them. It's saying that Jesus, having risen, having ascended, having gone through the curtain, being in that holy place, has a purpose. Jesus is not sat waiting for uh, his father to say, okay, you can go now. It's the end of history and you can uh, return to the world. He is engaged in the active work of interceding for those who have come to him. That's great news because what we need is somebody to intercede for us. We need a priest. (laughs) We need somebody to do that work. There are three elements that I want to uh, draw out as we think about what Jesus is doing in that intercessory work. To be honest, let me just stop there. To be honest, this, this subject is just so huge, so massive, that honestly... Honestly, we could start now and every single Sunday between now and this time next year, we could cover elements of what it means for Jesus to be interceding for us. We could do that. We're not going to do that, don't worry. We're not going to do that. So all that we can do is just kind of scratch the surface. And what I want to do is, if you like, give you enough of a flavor of how incredible this idea is so that it will whet your appetite 
for you to go away and dig in and understand what it means for Jesus to intercede for you. There are three elements, therefore, that we briefly want to cover. Firstly, he intercedes by his presence. By his presence. The previous part of this chapter has been talking about the whole idea of priests. It's been talking about two priests. Well, one priest and a whole group of priests. Melchizedek um, is a priest who appears, one reference, in the book of Genesis, and is, is this extraordinary figure who acts as a priest for Abraham. It's amazing. We haven't got time to deal with Melchizedek this afternoon. The next group of priests that we talk about is the priests that come from the uh, line of Aaron. They're the priests that we see right the way through the Old Testament. One of the things that we see is that there are many, 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 many priests. Why? Why are there many priests in the Old Testament? The reason that there are many priests is because they are just like you and they are just like me. They might start their priestly work at 30, 35, however old it might be, and they might carry on their priestly work, but at some point their body is going to decay and there's a point at which they will no longer be able to be a priest because they will die. It's as simple as that. They cannot carry on. There is a point at which you need another priest because the previous priest has died. One of the points that Jesus' presence in eternity means is that he is not limited by his death. Why is he not limited by his death? Because he died before he lived again. You see that remarkable difference? All of the other priests were priests and then they died and that was the end. Yet Jesus performed a priestly ministry, then he died, then he lived again to take up that priestly ministry Again, never to die again. He lives. He is not limited as a priest by death. It's a remarkable thing. What kind of legacy will you leave? Maybe you are really incredibly successful at a particular skill or gift or blessing to this world. Most of us, to be perfectly honest, aren't. (laughs) We contribute a little bit. Our families will remember us for a period of time. But then we will dwindle into history. Even the very best of us. Even the most loved of us. Even the most gifted of us. There is a point at which our work will, our legacy will end because... That's the nature of humanity. 
And yet Jesus is not limited. His legacy, he's not living on a legacy. He's living in reality because he lives. So the first thing that we see in his presence is he's not limited by death. Secondly thing we see is he's not limited by sin. Look at what it goes on to say in verse, verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That is, that is the kind of priest that we need. You see, one of the things that limited every single priest before was the fact that they were sinners. So there's a point at which there had to be another sacrifice, there had to be another preparation for even if it was the same priest to go and do the work again. He had to be prepared again for presence in, God, in the presence of God on behalf of the people. He had to be cleansed from his sin. And yet Jesus, who never sinned, yet became sin for us, is cleansed in his resurrection and returns to heaven in that state that we see in verse 26. Holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He is an interceding priest because he is present now. That means that he is interceding for all of his people. I, I find that remarkable. He is interceding for his people. What kept the Christians of Roman, the Roman Empire? What sustained them? When they were being taken to the Colosseum, and there was every potential for them to say, okay, I'm not a Christian anymore. I'll decide to not be a Christian and live instead. What encouraged them, strengthened them, helped them to endure that kind of final adversity of death and to die in the Colosseum in front of gladiators or, or uh, wild beasts, whatever it might be, what caused them to be able to do that? What caused Polycarp, one of the church fathers who in his 80s was brought before one of the Roman governors and was given the opportunity to recount his faith and to live instead. And yet in his 80s he decided to die and his words were this, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? Bring forth what thou wilt. I just, you know, when I, I've just read that and I've just had a, a shiver. Just to be able to stand and say, bring forth what thou wilt. Whether it's, well, it was flames and finally a dagger. Because the story goes that he wasn't consumed by the flames, but... However he died, it was the worst was brought to him, and yet he stood. What was it that encouraged Dietrich Bonhoeffer to face the noose rather than recant his faith? The interceding Jesus. 
That's what kept him. That's what kept them. And that's what keeps you and me. Because the same present priest covers all of that time. Isn't that remarkable? The priest that kept those Roman martyrs is the same priest that keeps you and me today. Why? Because he lives. He is present. The second thing that we see is the reason for which he intercedes. Why does Jesus intercede? Okay, he is interceding, and he's been interceding for the past 2,000 years and before, but that's another factor that we can think about some other time, because he is eternally present. In other words, as we saw uh, in week two, I think it was, Jesus steps out of time and into eternity. What connects the supernatural with this present world? Jesus, because he steps out of time into eternity, so his work becomes relevant and credible across all of that time. But what is he doing? Again, verse 25, we can see what he is doing. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. The focus, if you like, The purpose of the intercession of Jesus is for you and me to be saved. It's for you and me to be saved. That's the work that he is doing. That's what he is actively doing continually. John Piper puts it like this. We need to understand that we need to have a mindset which means that we wake up every morning with the thought pattern which says, if Jesus doesn't keep hold of me for another day, I'm a goner. And yet at the same time, have the confidence and hope that my priest who is interceding for me will keep hold of me every day and every day. But it is only because he keeps hold of me every day that I am saved. What does it mean to be saved? Some people have the idea that I'm saved if I say a certain set of words. Well, without a doubt, that moment of confessing can be the beginning of the true walk of faith, which is being saved. But the reality is that being saved is more than words at the beginning. I need to be saved every single day. I've used this picture before. I want you to imagine what it would be like if you were caught up on a river. You stepped out onto the river and it's, it's frost, it's icy and it all looks really secure and solid and it's, you know, it's great to be out on this river and you step out on this huge block of ice which is a foot and a half thick. It's safe as anything and then it breaks away from the bank. And you suddenly find yourself afloat in the river on a block of ice. Now you know the area. And you know that three quarters of a mile down the river, there is a huge waterfall. What do you need? 
you need saving. Yeah? You don't need a map. You don't need instructions. In fact, it doesn't actually matter whether you know what's ahead of you, does it? You still need saving. You need to be saved. You are so thankful because somebody appears on the bank with a rope and they tie the rope around a tree trunk and they throw the rope and as that rope crosses over the water, it lays across the the block of ice that you are on. You pick it up and you tie it around your waist. At the moment where you are connected on that ice flow to that tree, you are saved, aren't you? You're saved. It doesn't feel like you're fully saved. Because as soon as that, you know, as that rope carries on, uh, as the w- ice carries on flowing and that rope gets more and more taut, at some point it's going to spring into that tension, flip you off that block of ice and plunge you into freezing cold water. At that point, you are being saved. You are saved, in a sense, because you're tied to that tree and you can't be lost. But you are being saved as you're being dragged through that freezing cold water. And then at some point, that rope pulls you up as he pulls you up onto the final few feet and solidly onto ground again and onto the bank and you are truly saved. That's what it's like to be saved. And for that to happen, we need somebody to intercede for us, for our salvation. You know, we can see a little, there's two little pictures of this, of what Jesus is doing. We see one little picture in John chapter 17, where we see a picture of what Jesus prays for. It's a remarkable passage. I think, it, I think in terms of seeing into the heart of Jesus, seeing what he is like in his character, in his person, in his being, it's just the most remarkable chapter. If you take anything home to think about this coming week, think about John chapter 17. It is breathtaking. He talks about to his disciples what he's praying for. What do you pray for? What do I pray for? What does Jesus pray for? He says, I pray for you. Turns to his disciples and he says, I pray for you. That must have been a spine-tingling moment, mustn't it? Where you realize that Jesus himself is praying for you. Then he goes on and he says this. My prayer is not for them only, alone, which is the disciples. I pray also for those, because he's praying to his Father, and he says, my prayer to you, Father, is not for them alone, these who are in this room with me. My prayer is not for them. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Wow. Jesus opens up his heart in that chapter and he says this. Even back then, when he was walking this earth, he was praying for you and he was praying for me. 
And he was praying. He was effectively saying this. Father, I want them to be drawn into the relationship that you and I have. Have you ever had one of those moments where you see a group of people and you can see that there is a relationship which is amazing and you feel as if you're you're kind of out of it? You know, maybe you're just getting into a group or whatever it might be, just beginning to maybe even just coming along to this church for the first time and you've it you might be feeling as it's a bit difficult to start to get into this group of people we want to we want to help you want to encourage you be part of this but at the same time there is something even more amazing which is this promise jesus wants to draw you into the relationship that he has with his father let me say this Every human relationship, every network of relationships is ultimately going to be less satisfactory than it first appears. But the relationship between Jesus and his Father is absolutely perfect. And Jesus says, I want to draw you into that. Wow. But we also see that he prays for salvation. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon. That's what Jesus says to Simon Peter. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen my brothers. That's, they, that, that final little sentence is the most encouraging in that. Because Jesus doesn't say, if you turn back. He says, when you turn back. He says, my prayer to my Father is not a possibility and a hope. It's a communication of relationship which assures that you will turn back to me, even though you're going to go through a rough time. What's keeping you? If you're a believer in Jesus, what is keeping you today? What is going to keep you tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the rest of your life? What is going to keep you? It's the fact that Jesus has prayed for you to his Father. And when you see him face to face, you will know that that prayer is effective. Because his work to save you is the purpose of of his interceding. The final thing we see is that his interceding is effective. When we talk about interceding, we sometimes get the idea, don't we, of a pleading. We get the idea, is, is Jesus in this relationship with God the Father and he's kind of down on his knees saying, please, please, well, there's all of these back here and I'm standing in between for them. Uh, please, will, and, and the father is kind of stepping back saying, all right then, if, if, if you insist, is that the kind of relationship that exists between the, is Jesus having to plead for you and me? Is that what interceding means? 
We know from what he says in John chapter 17 that nothing could be further from the truth. He draws us into this beautiful relationship. He draws us in to what he enjoys, what the Father and the Son enjoy together. He draws us into that. Listen to what he says in the previous chapter of John chapter 16. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. I'm not saying I'll ask the Father on your behalf. In other words, when you ask, it's not as though you come to me and the Father is over there and I'm standing in the middle saying, well, they've asked for this and and I'm now asking on your behalf. I'm kind of sat in the middle, uh, hoping that it's okay. He says in uh, John chapter 16, verse 26, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. He loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? The Father... As Jesus intercedes, he hears the voice of Jesus. Let, let's, put Pete, let's put Simon Peter in the frame because it applies to, for you and me. Jesus intercedes to the Father on behalf of Simon Peter. And the Father's response is one of outpouring love directly towards Simon Peter because Simon Peter loves Jesus. That's the way it works. It's this gushing, overflowing desire of the Father to extend His love to you as Jesus speaks your name and my name for the glory of Himself. In other words, as soon as the Father hears, these are, these are your people, <laughs> I, want, I just want to pour out my love to you. You sometimes see it, don't you? You know, um, maybe when you're a kid, you, you, your mum or your dad just wanted to not just, you know, make tea for you, but wanted to make tea for your friends. You think, yeah, just bring them in. Let's, let's have a great time because if they're your friends, then I want to show my love to them as well. It's tiny. It's tiny compared to Jesus. In other words, the Father values Jesus so much, so much, that anyone who is associated with him through faith, he just wants to pour out blessing on. I'll tell you what, when I get up tomorrow and I look at the next week and all of the pitfalls and potentials for me to fail, for me to sin against God, I need to know that the Father in heaven is not a reluctant acceptor of me. He is pouring out his love on me because Jesus intercedes and claims me by name as his and says, Father, just pour out some more love on him. Pour out some more love on her. 
I'm stepping in because they're mine. I know you're going to love them as well. It's effective. And it assures us of our relationship. It assures us. If Jesus is eternally in the presence of his Father, because he is the risen and ascended Lord, then that changes the nature of the relationship. It becomes an eternal relationship that I'm drawn into. It becomes a relationship which means that today, today, even though I feel as though I'm flagging as a Christian, even though I feel as though I'm wasting my calling, even though I feel as though I might be failing to deliver, even though I might feel as though I am desperately conscious of my sinfulness, do those kind of ideas resonate with how you and I might feel sometimes? Is that how we are sometimes? Well, you know what? My relationship with an eternal Jesus means that that relationship is eternal as well. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 like this. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. Jesus said, and that's why we've called this series, you will receive power from on high. In other words, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be in relationship with me because of the seal of the Holy Spirit, which enters into you, becomes part of you, draws you in, gathers you up into that relationship. So Jesus says, I want to draw you into the relationship that me and my Father love. How? How does Jesus do that? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's not some abstract idea. How does, how does God love us? It's the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that causes you, little by little, to want to love God, even though by nature you hate Him. You understand that? By nature, you and I hate God. So as Spurgeon said, if there is any inclination for you to have any love towards God, it is because the Holy Spirit is working in you. Any inclination, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in you. That's the mark of God drawing you into that relationship. So, the very fact that you might be feeling the frailty of your Christian walk, the very fact that you might be feeling as if you are failing, is a mark of God working in you. You might be wanting desperately what you don't have as a believer. If that Holy Spirit was not working in you, you wouldn't want it. And yet by grace he is working in you. And that is the seal. What is that seal about? That Holy Spirit seal? He is a deposit. Guaranteed. A deposit. I love that. He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those 
who are God's possession. Have you, you've bought something recently. It's really quite expensive. Pay a deposit. Just make sure that it's yours. There's only one. There's only one of these things. And you just want it. So I'm going to put a £200 deposit on it. £200 deposit on that car means what? It means that when you go back with the other £45,000, it's definitely yours. Because you put, a t- I think they probably want more than the £200 deposit. This is definitely yours because you put a deposit on it. You know, the Holy Spirit is the deposit, it's the assurance, it's the absolute assurance that we're God's possession. That Jesus is interceding for us. And that no matter how bad it feels, it does not depend on how you are performing. It depends on the fact that Jesus is interceding for you. How? By faith. Believing that to be the case.